Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Adosa Adaro, Chief of Data Analytics and Privacy Officer at Toanea, former Chief Data Officer at AIG. He is also the author of two books on overcoming data challenges, Making Data Work, and his latest, Value Driven Data, from the Taylor and Francis Group. He returns to the program today to talk about these books and how organizations can overcome the inevitable growing pains of digital transformation. We're going to cut right to the chase here because there's lots to talk about. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Edosa, thank you so much for being with us on the program once again. Oh, it's great to be here yet again. It's brilliant. I enjoy. I yes. very much enjoyed the first one. So, so I'm really looking forward to this. Yes. Yes. And we can pull right from the first episode, even turning to your new book, Value Driven Data. We talked a lot last time about where data is helping insurance leaders solve problems in their gaps between this sector and the rest of the financial services industry. You talk a lot in your book about something called data vision. Now, I know listeners to the program, myself included, we're familiar with terms like computer vision and data signals. Tell us about what you mean by data vision and how it engenders a perspective that's unique from standard approaches to data governance and management. Yeah, and this this is an interesting one because data vision is, you know, I suppose you can think about it from a fundamentals of you know, how you traditionally think about vision, right? You're thinking about something that enables insight, enables you find direction, enables you explore options and the like. So I think what I like to think about and I focus quite specifically on in, in the book is what I call data enabled vision. And by this what I'm talking about is actually, you know, interestingly is actually stepping away initially at least from data. And actually starting with what is the vision? What is it that we're ultimately trying to achieve? Are you looking really at what is your toward end? Where are you trying to get to? And starting from that angle and coming back towards data actually is what I'm referring to here as data vision. Indeed. And I know this really started to dive into what we talked about in the last episode of not needing more data, not needing more haystacks to get more needles. You have the needles you need. You need to be looking at your haystacks in the right way. But is there a methodology here that helps business leaders better detect signals from noise? What are they doing wrong that keeps them from data-enabled vision? What What is the status quo that this new idea is meant to fight? Yeah, so I think, I think fundamentally, the, the first thing to do is really to step away from this, I suppose, the, the temptation of going data first, right? And it's a very odd thing for me to say, given that there's <laughs> more data. I think it's really to start off with, like we were sort of alluding to at the start, really starting with what is fundamentally your objective? What is it you're actually trying to achieve? But beyond that, when you when you look at the capture of how you're actually trying to then pull together those those sort of vision elements, it's really, I think, two fundamental things. One of them 
is that as an organization, and I'm talking beyond an individual here, you are actually looking to potentially get alignment in a vision. You're trying to see, can I really get something that we can all stand behind and we can all deliver as an organization? And that's very much that high level vision, you know, here's where we're trying to go, et cetera. But, but actually in trying to do that, if you've ever tried that simple <laughs> idea, it's fundamentally difficult to, to, to achieve. I think part of the challenge with that is this huge amount within organizations of misalignment and organizations then struggle with that. How do you then handle that? And, and I think the temptation there is that you, I suppose there's a couple of things you can do. You can, you can ignore them, you can completely pretend they're not there, or you can face them head on and say, here's misalignment, what do I do, do with you? I think the way that I would recommend, and I talk a lot about this in my book, is really the first you want to collect all of this. It's it's all a matter of then, you know, collating these ideas and this sort of, um, you know, I suppose it's vision elements. But the other bit is, you know, how do you then look across to actually, I suppose, you know, make the best of this divergence that you potentially have within misalignment? And I call that really looking at multiple perspectives or if you like triangulation. And then I look at the third element, which is really around how do you then consolidate that into something that can actually, you can all bring together. And really that then obviously then provides you that final, here's where we go and here's actually how we how we go about it. But I think you almost want to take a step back and say, why, why kind of bother? I mean, you know, you could just filter very easily you know, those visions that are aligned to where we're trying to go from those that aren't. But I think the, the danger is that if you look at where insurance is now, I mean, it, you know, we've, we insure, people who've been in insurance know that insurance project, projects and, and, and you know, programs have run over the years and insurance has actually tried to redefine itself lots, lots of times in the past. The trouble is when you're looking at innovation, when you're looking at things to renew and, you know, find new ways of doing things, a lot of times what you're trying to do is, I suppose, do things not quite in the way they've always been done. And that, right. is, and a lot of times those ideas are hidden away within misalignments. It actually it isn't the aligned vision, the aligned view. A lot of times it's just doing things the way they've always been done, perhaps just slightly, <laughs> you know, moving that along right. slightly. And I think, I think that's a fundamental thing to understand when we try to reinvent and try to innovate. Indeed. I want to dive into more of this idea of misalignment because it, it sounds like it can be so baked into what insurance companies are doing. It can be so a part of the status quo. You you can ignore it, as you were mentioning. You also might have no clue you're misaligned. I'm wondering what are the telltale signs and maybe if we can give an example of some worst case scenarios of, of what happens when it's not dealt with in terms of non-aligning your data, how you're processing it to the actual vision and how easy that is to do, even if you think that that you've got the, the target in your site. Yeah, I think there's some, there's some easy kind of ways to spot if you like, <laughs> the fact that you don't get Sure, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is the first thing. It's like, if I was going around an organization and I'm pulling through lots of ideas and work for else's, and I'm, I'm not actually picking up anything that's misaligned, there's a fundamental problem there. 
And that problem is either that, you know, well, <laughs> very unlikely that it doesn't exist, or it's the fact that it's not coming up to the surface, not bubbling up to the surface. And and that that's a fundamental problem because what it means is that you're in this sort of tunnel, uh, you know, sort of a vision situation where it's, it's an equal chamber, really. Everyone's saying what everyone else expects them to say. Right? right. Right. I think that's a danger because you're not really going to very likely get renewal or innovation born out of that. And then the other thing really is, I mean, I mentioned this idea of triangulation. I think one of the things you do is when you when you get varying perspectives and, and, the, and the way you do that is look at things as, you know, a very simple example would be if you looked at two different departments, the stereotype, for instance, within say marketing would be, let's go and do more. Let's go and you know, get more data. Let's get more sure. use cases out there. But the, the stereotype, for instance, within the governance or a cybersecurity or, or, or a risk function would be, well, actually, the opposite. <laughs> Let's do, do that. But fundamentally, you need all of this to be created, understood, uh, and you want to then synthesize all that and you know understand what is the ultimate objective here, what is it we're trying to do. In, in keeping that in mind, your book talks about how there's an inevitable trade-off between speed and sustainability in the process. Now, I, I assume this has to be different for you know all kinds of organizations, depending on what your business model is. But tell us a little bit about where that trade-off occurs and how business leaders can decide what trade-off or what degree of trade-off is best for them. Yeah, and, and this is this is an interesting one as well. And I think you know we we lead to it when we talk about things like straight through processing or you want to speed up your claims process from an insurance standpoint that's all fundamentally speed right and there's, and there's two right. and there's two ways you can look at speed from straight through processing or or from a claims standpoint is really that you know you could push just push quicker and just get quicker decisions or you could actually and a lot of times what you need to do to really get things through is to take out steps and specific elements within your process if you did that without due consideration then you're potentially exposing yourself to, to risk and to, <laughs> to, to potential negative impacts and so i think that's the fundamental challenge there for for an organization but i think that you can look at this in a slightly diff different sort of way and say look what is it that we're fundamentally trying to do? And again, this is coming away from data and saying, what is it we're fundamentally trying to do here? A, a good example of it was a use case I was looking at, which is really about how can you increase the, I suppose, or, or increase the savings from, from fraud, or if you like, increase the detection of fraud, such that you're actually reducing that risk. And what then transpired was something I call <laughs> too much of a good thing right so you might you might think that if i detected more fraud then that was a great thing because i then reduced my exposure to fraud and i think a lot of people in insurance know that that is one of the biggest sort of factors around you know your your loss ratio and and so what what then happens is i i'm saying i'm saying that you know obviously using my model as per, as per normal and detecting that 
actually, when you do this, this is going to have a fundamental impact on your business process. But ultimately, what you do when you bring data and AI into the organization is you are actually redefining parts of the business process. And when you look at it from that standpoint, it's, you know, in this situation, it was very much around the process was you detect, you then verify you know, through human intervention, and then you either pass or fail that detection process. But what happens when you 10x or 100x your detection? What happens to further down the line that, in, that, in that business process? You then suddenly either have to 10x or 100x your human resource <laughs> you know, input, or you've got a 10x or 100x you know, bottleneck that you just created. So, so you can have the situations where it's too much of a good thing. And it's fundamentally, you know, in this way, I sort of allude to, you need to rethink a lot of your, your sort of design of your entire business process. Yes. In that answer, and vis-a-vis everything you were saying about triangulation, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of your first book, which you gave me. And as you can tell from our email back and forth, I found it very fascinating coming from a background in global policy that a huge inspiration for how you look at data came from not Brexit, but Grexit, the <laughs> the uh, the Greek exit from the EU around 20, uh, I want to say it was around this time of year in 2015 and it didn't come to pass. Uh, Greece is still part of the EU against every prediction of all of my bosses at the time. But it's a gigantic analogy. I'll tell everybody to really check out the book and, and I'll lay it up that way. But it kind of revolves around this idea that there are some business truths, some problems, some solutions, some ways of thinking about the problems that come from embracing this notion of, in a vacuum, it doesn't have to do with Grexit so much, but this notion of, of being kind of too big to to fail and specifically just vis-a-vis what you were saying about triangulation and in even in your last answer you talk about in that book embracing frustration and how important that is to the process in triangulation it's about getting that feedback you might not get from a division where the the culture is a very yes man kind of culture and 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 isn't as keen as giving you know negative feedback higher up the food chain etc but embracing that frustration what forms of frustration do you think are healthy and productive in a digital transformation, particularly in the insurance space? And how would you assuage insurance leaders and even your shop floor subject matter experts who might feel that these frustrations are too much and think of them as maybe red flags for the organization rather than uh, a challenge that has an opportunity at the heart of it? Yeah, I mean, frustrations, I mean, I think the breadth of it, I mean, it's very, very wide when you think about frustrations. I, I look at it from a number of perspectives. And I think my kind of view on this is that most broadly, frustration is beneficial if its ultimate outcome leads on to your objective, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and, and by that, what I'm trying to say is that so some people think about frustrations as something that leads on to failure, as an example, or leads to right. something not actually happening. But actually, you know, if you think about failure, I'm not, I'll be very, very honest here, I'm not one of those who thinks that failure is necessarily something to look forward to or, or failure is right. the great thing that you have to have. But I think there's within failure, 
especially when failure is a catastrophic failure, which is important to make that distinction. If, when it isn't catastrophic failure, within failure, there's a huge amount of opportunity to learn, to progress, to actually find those, you know, those um, areas where you can actually push the boundaries. And I think those kinds of frustrations are actually very quite beneficial. And I think that it, they should be embraced, actually. Absolutely. And, and you, but you talk about that in kind of the context of dealing with challenges where we're going to see all kinds of institutions, including insurance uh, firms, de-silo. Mm. And I'm wondering, as that as that process takes place and we and these experiences start to be universal, uh, maybe one of the one of my favorite chapters from the book is where you really dive into a way of looking at this called empowering flow. And I, mm. I love that terminology because essentially what you talk about in this chapter is winning buy-in from across the organization to enable that de-siloing process. Mm -hmm. And you talk about facing challenges and low morale, something very specific. It almost feels like a hard metric of something called deep frustration Mm -hmm. in the team when it comes to you know, the interactional frictions and the deliberate, you know, reversal measures. Tell us a little bit about these terms and best strategies for business leaders looking to keep their teams incentivized on tasks that will help them work better through, you know, these de-siloing challenges and help Mm. them better work in concert with AI adoptions. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I talk about is this idea that actually, you know, first of all, I think it's, Good, it's a good idea for me to actually define what I mean, de-siloing, because I think there's a sure. huge amount of talk about silos and breaking them down and smashing them, destroying them and all that. I, I, I take a slightly different view, maybe even counterintuitive view, which is that silos don't necessarily need to be destroyed. Actually, in some ways, they have you know on uh, untold sort of benefits in some ways. But actually, what what I push within my book and you know see from my experience is very much this idea that rather than break them down, we look at creative ways of actually connecting them. And beyond you know the, the connection of existing silos, I almost <laughs> advocate for this idea that you can be intentional about creating or even de- deconstructing certain silos and recreating them in the shape. That actually does make sense. But when it comes to giving that definition of what I'm thinking about silos, how do you do this de-siloing? And one of the things I talk about, I use this and now this sort of framework of three R's. So really what a lot of organizations and what a lot of people actually feel in terms of the frustrations that they might feel when things are transforming, is they just do not understand the new lay of the land. Like what is this new thing we're trying to do? And I think it's fundamentally important to do a bit of a reset. And by that, I'm saying resetting what is the scope, what's the new lay of the land, how, what is this new promised land, and what does it look like for us all? Right? I think that's a fundamental first step. I call that the reset step. And the second R, I call actually the reversal step. And the challenge is a lot of times, even when you do manage to do for the first R, it's a reset step, is there's a huge amount of, I suppose, historical baggage, some of us call it, that really hasn't been taken out of the system. And by that, you know, I'm talking, I'm reshaping this, the, the organization, actually I'm reshaping some, some processes. What is it that in doing that, I'm now going to have to take out or is what is it that's going to be left behind? 
And I think the third part of that is what I call the reward element, is that in a lot of situations, and there's plenty of examples I can give around this as well, is that you know when we reshape organizations, reshape processes, reshape you know teams and how we do things, one area we typically just do not look hard enough at is the whole area of reward. Like, what are we actually incentivizing? What is it that we're now actually you know, providing people as a way to motivate them to go into this new direction? And <laughs> one of the, I suppose, the, maybe not too surprising, but, but usual suspects, I'd say, is actually KPIs. Right? So a lot of times what we've done is reset things. We've done the kind of reversal, if you like, to a certain degree, but we haven't looked hard enough at what KPIs are we now measuring? How do we measure performance? How do we measure, you know, success? And I think that is a, a significant step towards making sure that you can actually make that transformation happen and actually leverage, in some ways, frustration as a tool to actually drive things forward. Yes. And you've given us a, a couple of extra minutes. And I really want to thank you for your time, especially for that last answer where we had a very, very like clean framework. And it, and it works, especially with alliteration with the three R's. In that last answer, though, you were talking about how that, you know, de-siloing is kind of a trend right now and it's it's everywhere and everybody thinks all the walls are coming down. But that's not what's really going on. We'll have to have you back for another episode on that because I, I wanted to go for another 20 minutes pulling that apart. But you've been very, very gracious with your time, especially for a late night where you are. Edosa, thank you so much for being with us in these past episodes. We really appreciate it. It's been very enjoyable. So thank you very much for having me. And before we wrap up today's episode, I, I don't normally try to promote both episodes in one so succinctly, but this episode where we were able to talk about both books by Edosa really gave us an opportunity to dive into a question that we only were able to give so much time in our first episode. And in it, or at least in his answer, Edosa explained at length about the dangers of big data, the hype around big data, much in the same way he talked about de-siloing in today's episode, and why he thinks this kind of engenders a little bit of myopia in terms of goals and in ways that are counterintuitive to the ultimate outcomes of digital transformations, which should be not to just put more and more and more on your plate, but rather to achieve a very specific task-oriented goal that makes things more efficient across the organization. And this just doesn't mean that you're collecting all the data you can or tearing down all the walls that you can. It's about going about things with purpose. And I think between especially the last episode and then into this one, I think he was really able to ram those points home. So a lot of food for thought for business leaders who might be awash in a lot of hype-based talk about how everything is going to be data and they need all the data they can and all the walls are coming down. That's not exactly the case. And I was very serious at the end there when I said we should have Adosa back to talk about the ways that data isn't tearing down all the silos necessarily, but 
really causing us to look at them in critical ways and ask which silos need to be there and how do we reinforce them? I think that's going to be a fantastic conversation if we go for three. But I'll have to keep everybody waiting on that front. We'll let you know when a dose is on the way back. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge Technology Research, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.